Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a one trillion dollar tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk/greattalent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare insurance plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare insurance plans at uh1.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com/wondersuite. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Last week we did a podcast looking at uh, a few issues. One was around what was happening on the housing market in Ireland, and um, we made some comments about uh, the developer class in Ireland, what's happened to them, um, about house prices generally, and um, I also spoke about some tax data that the Department of Finance um, released last week on various different aspects of the Irish tax system, and um, I know you online and I also online have got a very very strong response to that um I think a lot of it's not very complimentary but um could you give us a sense of what sort of reaction you got and to what particularly different people reacted in very different ways to our last podcast and as you say we did get an unusually strong reaction the property market I think always does if you look at any Uh, article in the in the mainstream irish press for example anything in the times or the indo that is about either property prices and or rents it always is up there in terms of the league tables of most read articles it's a subject for obvious reasons that is close to everybody's hearts and indeed their interests so and it's one of those things that everybody has strong opinions about which is curious in the first case in the first instance because a lot of the time we do get feedback a lot of the feedback that we get or certainly that i do from this podcast and other media work is that when i stray into areas that people deem me to be a non-expert i'm told to shut up and that what on earth do you know about subject x 
you're opining about this, that and the other, and it's not your area of expertise, stick to what you know, and don't talk about what you don't know. It was no different with this property thing. We, we, we are deemed to be non-experts. And people took issue with us on a couple of counts. One was the remarks that we made about the developer class, which you suggested that they had been eviscerated somewhat in recent years, result of the financial crash, and also official government and other agency policies since then have kept them firmly under the knee. People seem to think that the developers are alive and well, and are behaving as rapaciously as they ever did, and that they are the source of the property market's woes, whether it's lack of supply, high house prices, high rents, or all three. Uh, we, they, people took us to task on the numbers that we quoted for empty houses during the, the building boom and just accused us of not knowing what we were talking about. It strikes me that this is a narrative being peddled by at least one well-known political party, beginning with S, which is that it's all, it, A, it's easy to understand what's going on, and B, therefore we know how to cure it. And if you have a very simple narrative that it's all the fault of developers and more recently all the fault of investment funds or vulture funds, as they are also known, then it should be relatively easy to cure. You just take developers off at the kneecaps and you do the same to to the vulture funds and everything will be all right. Simplistic narratives in, in most walks of life, not least economics, are rarely true and nor is this one. Housing reminds me sometimes of the oil market. Now, you know, Jim, from your years in financial markets, that the oil market is one where countless thousands of very smart people analyze to the greatest detail the supply of oil and also the demand for oil. And the one thing that they can never, ever get, even though they can get the supply and the demand roughly right in, or even precisely right in some cases, they can never get where those two graphs cross. And so guessing the oil price is, is beyond them. And so it is with many other prices of many other assets, including, including houses. You may think you understand what's going on. I don't pretend to. I just know some of the factors that are involved. And one of the things that we've talked about is, is interest rates and all the other factors that affect both demand and supply of housing. So it's, it's interesting that we get these kinds of, of um, I think, very ill-informed response. And I know that you also had an interesting Twitter angle on this. It wasn't so much about the detail of the response, but somebody deciding that Jim Power is so well known that we need two of him. <laughs> That's one way of putting it, Chris. Um, I, I spoke about it on the podcast last week, and I also tweeted what I thought was an interesting statistic on Irish taxation that was published by the Department of Finance. And I stressed it was published by the Department of Finance. It was not my research. Um, and the Department of Finance clearly gets these data from the Revenue Commissioners. So I tend to believe it. Uh, but basically, I pointed out that the Department of Finance had pointed out that 80% of income tax in Ireland is contributed by the top 25% of earners in the country and that the top 1% pay 20% of total income tax. Um, you would have thought, you know, pretty non-controversial stuff, but of course it elicited an amazing reaction, um, some sort of agreeing, others um, and more actually um, having a real go at me over uh, publicizing these sorts of statistics. Uh, one suggested to me that I clearly 
know very little about economics if I regard this as a meaningful statistic. Um, I think it is a very meaningful statistic. Um, and I also got a lot of um, stuff about the distribution of wealth in Ireland. Um, I did not tweet about the distribution of wealth in Ireland. I tweeted about income okay, and the amount of tax paid on that. So there's a difference here between a stock of wealth and a flow of income, which is what I was talking about. But anyway, it elicited an amazing response from, you know, pe people who believe that our tax system is incredibly progressive and people who believe it's not progressive and that Ireland is absolutely swamped by inequality. Uh, but it's like housing. This, this discussion on inequality always raises the heckles of a lot of people. And it's very, very difficult to actually have any sort of balanced, rational conversation about it. But uh, it came to the point where yesterday I got a phone call from somebody I didn't know down in Dungarvan. Um, well, sorry, I, I knew him online, but didn't know him personally, uh, pointing out to me that he'd been receiving messages from what is obviously a cloned account at Jim Power Econ underscore and the underscore being the differentiator for my own Twitter handle. And um, this Twitter site was sending out messages to people saying that I have some really big news. Could you contact me immediately? I, I, I kind of was thinking about it. I was disturbed by it, obviously, because you don't like to see this in somebody impersonating you. Uh, but it is really interesting, in my view, that it came a few days after I made those comments about income tax in this country. And um, one just wonders, um, you know, what sort of political forces out there are behind this sort of behavior. But it just shows you that the whole Twitter world is extremely dangerous. And it also shows you that the, the openness of people to engage in meaningful debate is very, very limited. I, I would have always defined an Irish liberal as somebody who's open to all sorts of ideas as long as they agree with their own. When you discuss housing or tax, that's exactly what you get. So sinister stuff. Yeah, so I think in, in terms of the first few minutes of this podcast, we, we've got a common theme across several diverse areas. Best summed up by saying that once we have a narrative once somebody has a story about something that is often quite complicated, they stick to it no matter what. Facts don't get in the way of, of belief. The question that's raised in my mind after is, is it always been like that? Or do we think that it's getting worse, that we live in an age of irrational beliefs, that um, maybe we've always been prone to them as a species, but is it getting worse? Has things like Trumpism and the Brexit stuff and all that populist political rhetoric where people seem to be clinging to their own facts, not just their own beliefs. And importantly, when presented with facts that collide with the narrative, they reject the facts, not the narrative. I think it's always been the case that, uh, that human beings are very reluctant to change their mind. But my sense, and this might be an angry old man just speaking, is that it is getting a lot worse and that the ability that we have limited though it might be, to change our minds in the face of evidence that conflicts with our narratives, is shrinking. What do you think? Definitely, there's no doubt about it. Over the last few years, with the emergence of Trump, with the whole Brexit thing, etc., um, the, 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 the whole thing has become much more polarised and... Um, you know, one is, one is not allowed to think rationally about a subject and people form views and they stick to those views. And I would go back to that famous 
quote from Keynes um, many decades ago, a century ago, I guess at this stage, almost, not quite, uh, where Keynes said, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? So I think everybody should be entitled to change their mind, but I think everybody should be entitled to, you know, debate these things without and be prepared to actually change your view if you, if you're, if, if you believe you're wrong in your view. Um, but I also would believe, and well, it's, it's, it's the case that social media has really amplified this sort of reaction. Social media does bring out um, a lot of the lunatics who take really, really extreme views and are not prepared to contemplate any other sort of view. Um, interestingly, a very good friend of ours, uh, Greg Canty down in Cork, who does a fantastic podcast called Win Happy, um, he commented yesterday that the new Jim Power was much nicer than the old Jim Power. And, I, I uh, couldn't possibly comment on that myself. <laughs> he's not setting the bar very high. I shall leave that up, up to Greg. Because I think what you've just raised there is very important. We've identified the fact that people are so reluctant to change their minds. They cling on to their narratives in the face of all possible data to the contrary. And the other aspect of, of modern behavior, I think, is people are so angry about it. And I know people have written books about this, about we really are an angry people. And, and that anger, God knows where it's coming from. We can have a discussion about the possible sources of it. But that anger seems to feed that willingness never to change your mind, is that what I'm angry about is what I'm angry about, and I'm never going to stop being angry about it. Um, it is it is a very febrile political, if not social, phenomena, and I think bodes ill for the future because it, it means that the ability of us to enact economic, at least if not other political policies, um, becomes heavily restricted. If, if people, if you imagine yourself as a politician saying, I want to do this to achieve this outcome. And the reason why I think it will achieve this outcome if I push this button or press this lever, how does one debate that if all that ever happens is people say, no, you're wrong because my facts tell me that you're wrong. And not only are you wrong, I'm incandescently angry about what it is that you're saying. It, it certainly isn't a definition of civilised debate, is it? Uh, no, it's, it certainly is not. And if you put yourself in the shoes of a politician trying to develop and implement policy against that sort of backdrop, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's incredibly difficult. And there was an interesting letter in the Irish Times this morning from Bill Profiska, who was formerly in the competition authority here. I assume it's the same guy. He's now overseas. But he was talking about um, the way in which politicians around the world have basically ceded a lot of power to bureaucratic institutions. And um, I, I guess Neffet in this country would be a good example of what he's talking about. But it, it, it definitely this attitude towards politicians um, and this really failure to engage in any sort of rational debate does force the political system to go in certain directions. And I definitely think that that vitriol, etc., is driving the political classes to actually cede power to unelected institutions. And uh, it's, it's, it's not good. You know, it's, it, it definitely flies in the face of democracy. I think there's no doubt about that. Or at least it flies in the face of well-functioning democracy. Yes, yes. It, it speaks to a very dysfunctional way of organizing ourselves. 
because going back to the sort of things that you and I talk about, when we say, okay, this is, this is an issue, let's call it house prices, it could be unemployment, it could be any one of an, any number of an economic problems that we face. How on earth do we have that debate that ends up with us with policies that make it the situation better than it was? If instead what you get is a, a political party saying, okay, I've spotted the narrative of choice, which is A, let's be angry about it, B, pretend it's very simple, and C, I'm going to promise that therefore I can cure your ills. I feel your pain, I know how to cure it, and this is what I'm going to do. And you can see that with housing, for example. We know that there's at least one political party in Ireland that claims to know how to solve it and will solve it within 10 minutes of taking power. Instead of the honesty of saying it's very complicated, we're going to do our best. Um, That doesn't seem to uh, get anybody anywhere these days. So I think that the chances of good housing policy, let alone any other kind of policy in Ireland, and indeed in many other countries going forward, seem to be receding. There's no doubt about that because there there is an attitude out there that there is some silver bullet, that there is one issue that if you address that issue, you solve everything. Um, And that very much is the narrative of the main party of opposition at the moment. But the reality is, and I think any rational person would have to recognize the reality that the housing crisis and the solution to that crisis, it's a myriad of different factors. There is no single silver bullet solution. And unless you address all of those factors together, you're never going to solve this problem. But unfortunately, that sort of nuance isn't very acceptable. Um, You know, people want the answer and they want it now and they believe there is a silver bullet. There's not. There's a lot of different things that do need to be addressed. So we really, in in terms of sort of popular debate about these issues, uh, we definitely need to be a lot more nuanced about how we discuss them, how we debate them. Which is uh, the purpose, of course, of this podcast and indeed many others. I know the um, podcast that both of us do with Eamon Dunphy, he had a vision a few years ago to set up the stand to reinvent himself as, as as a modern broadcaster. He'd been in broadcasting all his life. And he believed that there was a real gap in the market for a new form of long form journalism. Uh, given the demise of the newspapers, and um, he's been proved right, this 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 medium because podcasting isn't new; it's taken a while to take off. But I think it does fill a gap, if not all the gaps, certainly a gap with respect to addressing those people that seem to want to listen to ideas, to listen to facts and opinions about how essentially to make the world a better place. I mean, that might sound a bit pious and a bit naive, but at the end of the day, I think that's what we're all about: is we're, we're discussing things that might make make things better. Um, in that spirit, should we move on to a bit, you know, an area that um, perhaps people would accept that we have some expertise, at least, if not complete expertise in economics. There's been an awful lot of news flow about inflation, something we've talked about endlessly on this, and we'll continue to do so for a while. Lots of interesting things going on. I know there's some interesting stuff going on in Ireland. But we've had central bank meetings in the in Europe, in the ECB and the Fed recently. The uh, UK central bank has been opining a lot about what it sees the future for interest rates. There are actually hints coming out of the Bank of England now that um, early next year it could be that we see interest rates going up in the UK. And that would have implications, I think, for lots of people, not just in the UK, but I think the first big Western central bank to raise interest rates if it happens, I've no idea. Uh, if it, you know, whoever it is, will set the tone for all of the others. But the news on inflation isn't great. Um, it's still out there. 
Uh, I noticed today, for example, the UK has joined in with the US and is noticing that secondhand car prices are going up a lot as a result of supply-demand imbalances, as a result of component shortages, particularly the chips, are, you know, because essentially cars are just big computers these days. The world's third largest container port in China, in a place I cannot pronounce, has just announced that one of its big terminals is closed, which has huge implications for shipping or getting stuff moved around the world. The cost of getting a container, the standard box that goes on ships between China and the West Coast of the United States, is now up by a factor of 10 on pre-pandemic levels and has risen by 50% in the last month. That terminal in China was, was closed, by the way, because of, of workers getting COVID um, and a, a co generally a COVID scare in the region. And that's affecting economies a lot, the, the, the new Delta strain in all sorts of different ways, but particularly this one. So, yeah, the inflation story is still very much out there. The, the headline numbers are poor. We have central banks starting to mutter about talks about talks about reducing monetary easing which is the jargon, and ultimately muttering, no more than that, about potential interest rate rises. There, there has to come a point, Jim, doesn't there, where all of these temporary price rises just keep going on and on and on, and we have to decide they're not temporary. Or can we just keep talking like this for another year or two and interest rates staying at zero? Yeah, Chris, we, we've been discussing this topic since we began our podcast series and um, uh, we battled it about and uh, we, we've met, we, we've come to no clear conclusions because I don't think there are, are any clear conclusions. Um, it's an evolving story, but definitely, you know, as time goes on and as you see more inflation becoming embedded in the system, um, it definitely becomes more of an issue. Um, but the reaction of central banks is still quite relaxed generally. Okay, the Bank of England's probably um, the most bearish at this juncture, but the, the latest mutterings from the European Central Bank, for example, um, you know, saying that it would be the first quarter of 2022 before the Eurozone economy returned to its pre-COVID levels of activity, that there was still 3.3 million fewer people at work than prior to the pandemic. And while they expect inflation to rise um, in the medium term, they still think it will remain below the 2% target in the medium term. Okay, there is a spike to 2.2% at the moment, but um, taking a sort of a longer term perspective, they believe that inflation will remain under their 2% target. And they also say that the risks to economic activity are still evenly balanced. So that to me suggests a central bank that is still quite relaxed about the world, despite the fact that one of its leading members, uh, Weidmann, the president of the Bundesbank, um, would be a lot less relaxed than that. And then you look at what's happening in the United States. The economy has obviously been picking up quite strongly over the last six months, but the Federal Reserve's latest um, meeting suggesting that, you know, while the economy is still picking up, there's still a requirement for low interest rates and ongoing bond buying for the foreseeable future and that the inflation rate above two percent is a transitory thing although the headline inflation rate at the moment is running at around um 5.3 5.4 percent and the core rate uh, which strips out volatile food and energy and so on um it's now at 4.3 percent so 
uh, there's very definitely, um, you know, building inflationary pressures in the system. And um, I think for central bankers, the pressures are going to intensify over the coming months about when they actually stand up um, and do something real about addressing this problem. Interesting debate. Uh, We've said for months it was going to be an interesting debate. It is an interesting debate. It is still evolving. Uh, We're still not clear as to how it's going, but you certainly have to recognise that the risks for central banks are actually rising. Last week, we had uh, July inflation for Ireland, and Ireland for over a decade has been very firmly in the lack of inflation camp. You know, we've had virtually no inflation in the system. But in July, the headline rate jumped to 2.2%. But when you look at the components that contributed to that year-on-year increase, which was the highest um, in over a decade, as far as I remember, transport costs up by 7.9%, housing, water, electricity, and gas costs up by 5.3%. Um, and both of those reflect the fact that there has been a dramatic increase in oil prices over the last 12 months following the very artificial collapse in oil prices once COVID struck in March 2020. So there is a base effect definitely feeding through here. The other area where there's a bit of inflation in the system is restaurants and hotels. You know, as they reopen, prices are up 3.1% on a year earlier. And if you think about What's happening with restaurants and hotels, um, they have just fully reopened pretty much, but they are still subject to significant restrictions. They are still subject to costly measures to try and protect health uh, within those establishments. So you can see why there would be a bit of price pressure coming through in the system. But the other um interesting part of the inflation picture here at least and i think it is pretty much a worldwide phenomenon is that in areas like food and clothing and footwear uh, there is still a lot of price compression going on and if you take a five-year perspective for example food prices today are almost six percent lower than they were on average five years ago clothing and footwear prices are 12.9% lower than they were five years ago. So the the inflation picture here is nuanced, but you you can see where the price pressures are coming through. It does reflect factors, particularly um, COVID-induced factors like the impact on oil prices and the reopening um, of hospitality businesses. So the question, of course, is, as is the question elsewhere, is this going to get embedded in the system or is it, a transitory phenomenon, as most central bankers still seem to believe. I'll put you on the spot and say, well, how long, how many months can you go on calling it transitory before you're actually wrong? Well, I, I would say if you got another couple of months of these sorts of pressures, um, you know, if, if you went into the final quarter of the year and we were still seeing these pressures coming through, I think central bankers uh, would have to admit at that stage, well, this is becoming a little bit more embedded than we would feel comfortable with. And it is now necessary to start withdrawing some of that excessive monetary stimulus that's been in the system for very good reason over the last 18 months. Um, Because I think for central bankers, history shows it's easier 
to fight inflation before it becomes embedded than to try and fight it once it becomes embedded in the system. So for central bankers, the risks and the stakes are very, very definitely very high at the moment. I'll tell you why I think you're wrong on this one, Jim. Right. Um, Because I think they want this inflation. They're hiding behind the fig leaf of saying it's transitory, but it's something they want to happen. And I think it's a political, not an economic desire. There are economics behind it. The economics of uh, wanting higher inflation is, of course, it technically erodes the real value of all this debt that's been built up by governments recently. And it, it helps. It's kind, it's kind of an inflation tax is how we describe it. But politically, what they want is for those restaurant and hotel workers that you mentioned, they want those prices up. They want those wages up in those sectors because it cures the inequality problem that is plaguing so many economies uh, over the last decade or two and causing so many of these political problems. But surely, Chris, sorry for interrupting you, but surely that should be the concern of politicians, not central bankers. Central bankers' mandates are very much to make sure that the stability of the currency is, is preserved, that inflation remains under control. I'm quite sure that politicians have been having a quiet word with central bankers and those that understand how the world works, or at least understand the complexities of how the world works, know that the way in which you're going to be able to solve, or one way you can solve the inequality problem and get the wages up of the people that suffer from that inequality um, has to include this inflation phenomena, um, because that's what wage rises over a sustained period mean. And that the only way that you can really do this, or the only way we think we know how we can do this, is by both fiscal and monetary policy working hand in hand. Um, It used to be the case that monetary policy was said to be either accommodative or not. Um, But both arms of fiscal and monetary policy have to be accommodative. And they are. Boy, are they at the moment. So I think politicians are involved very quietly. Nobody can say this out loud because it runs counter to a lot of conventional wisdom and inflation hawkishness that we've seen over the past. But I do think there is a political drive by both central bankers and politicians to get wages up, which ultimately solves the populist dilemma or the problem that faces these economies, our economies, and in a way speaks to that problem that I began this podcast about, which is one of the reasons, one of the few legitimate reasons anyway why some people are angry is because of that inequality issue. They either see it in their own lives or in the lives of other people, either their friends, their family, or or for our generation, their children. And the way in which we create more opportunities and better incomes and better outcomes is via getting the wages of these people up and their job opportunities up. And that means you've got to run your economies red hot. In a way, it's the flip side of the austerity experiment. We know where austerity got us, which was absolutely nowhere up a cul-de-sac. And this is, I don't know what the word is for the exact opposite of austerity, but this is negative austerity. And I do think that it is politically rather than or as much as economically motivated. But we'll see. Let's, well, let's see. What- there is an issue here about the real purchasing power. I mean, if wages are increasing, but if prices are increasing even more, real purchasing power is being eroded. So um, anyway, at the end of the day, is this is a topic we have discussed at great length since we began this podcast series. And I suspect it's one 
that we will continue to discuss into the future. Earlier in the podcast, we spoke about uh, this uh, inability of many people to take a nuanced view on issues. And I think one area where this sort of extremism was really demonstrated was in the Brexit debate. And um, you, you were mentioning to me before the podcast about some of the trade evidence that's now emerging between because of Brexit is pretty dramatic at this juncture. Yeah, just um, Ireland. And this is just one small example of the Brexit effect on economies. It's a fact that won't change anybody's mind. Any, any of the pre, pro or anti-Brexiteers will, will look at this, particularly the Brexiteers, and say, doesn't matter, don't care. Um, it, it really is irrelevant. But since Brexit happened, the freight traffic, roll-on, roll-off lorries, trade between Ireland and the UK is down by nearly a third, according to data published this week. And trade between direct trade of this lorry traffic between Ireland and the EU is up 100% since Brexit. And it's a, a small straw in the wind. The, these aren't huge absolute numbers, but they're big relative changes. And it speaks to how Brexit is impacting on the UK. It's it's the air coming slowly out of, of, of a slow puncture that is that is the UK economy. And I think that as as years go by, this will just mount up. But it's already changing the structure of the Irish economy, for example, in, in ways that were predictable. Uh, we knew that this was the shape of it. We didn't know exactly how it would pan out. We don't know exactly how it's going to pan out over the future. But this is a new trend that I would certainly expect to continue uh, for the foreseeable future, that these new ferry routes that are being opened up directly between Irish ferry ports and France in particular, but also Holland and Spain, this is going to continue. The economics of it, they used to use the land bridge that was the UK, and that's changed. And um, it's, it's going to change further. I think that one, one thing that we need to talk about today, Jim, which again speaks that point I was making earlier on about standing accused of being a non-expert and this is an area that neither of us are experts in certainly foreign policy foreign relations between countries but I think just marking the occasion the week that's in it as we say of what's happening in Afghanistan so I don't know about you mate but for all of my angst over Trumpism my bitter disappointment about Brexit, the way it affect, is affecting the UK as a country, and indeed affecting me personally, made me feel really terrible, um, both as an analyst and as a human being. What's going on in Afghanistan, I must say, has made me feel much worse than anything I felt as a result of those two things. Would you, am I overreacting? No, I, 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 I totally agree. Um, you, you get the sense over the last few days that we've seen um, the very worst side of humanity and human nature, you know, the, 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 the capacity for evil is, is just extraordinary. It's unimaginable. It's really, really hard to know um, from an outsider's perspective how you figure this one out because, you know, the Russians invaded Afghanistan and um, after 10 years, they pulled out, defeated. The States has been in Afghanistan for the last 20 years. They have now basically pulled out, defeated um, we have the Taliban now taking full control. Uh, the implications of that for women in particular are absolutely too horrendous to even contemplate. It's dystopian stuff. And um, you, you certainly feel that that segment of the world is now having, th 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 there's a move back to ground zero in terms of civilization. 
Um, well, ground zero is is something um, a phrase that is certainly resonant here because one of the th- reasons why the West was the Americans in particular, but NATO in general was in Afghanistan was because of Al Qaeda launching the September 11th attacks. We're coming up to the 20th anniversary of of those attacks, which I remember very well indeed. And one of the many aspects, you've spoken about the the awful human aspects of this tragedy, particularly for women, but I suspect for many Afghanis actually, is the role of Al-Qaeda. I've been listening to intelligence analysts, obviously ex-spooks in various media, media talking about referencing a United Nations report recently saying that al-Qaeda is already active in 15 Afghanistan provinces, that there clearly is a relationship between al-Qaeda and the Taliban. Al-Qaeda hasn't gone away in, in, in perhaps the way in which um, the Americans would prefer to believe. Switching topics a little bit, I watched the, an ex-Canadian ambassador to Afghanistan on the BBC last night and he was crying over what's happening. Whereas I probably know very little about foreign policy, one assumes that an ambassador from a G7 country to Afghanistan knows something. And when he says that it shouldn't have happened, and it shouldn't have happened in this way in particular, I, I sit up and take notice. And, and my emotional reaction to this is that I would agree that this, if it was inevitable that the US was going to pull out they shouldn't have pulled out in this way, letting so many Afghanistan people down. And I do think personally that Biden has fallen into a trap set for him by Donald Trump because he's honoring an agreement that Donald Trump signed with the Taliban and he should have done better. I wonder whether this is, and I know this may be a bit hyperbolic, is this the effective end of Biden's presidency? Perhaps not. You know, that, that I say is an emotional response. The fact is that, you know, from opinion polls that we know about, most Americans do not did not want their troops in Afghanistan anymore. It was a, a very well-supported policy by the vast majority of Americans to pull the troops out. There had been several things going around today that say that, pointing again to statistical evidence, that most Americans, or a very large number of them, really don't know where Afghanistan is and when shown a map, couldn't tell you where it is in the world. You mentioned the way in which Afghanistan saw off the Russians in the 20th century and saw off the Americans now in the 21st century. They, of course, saw off the British in the 19th century. And I reread something I, I, I read a long time ago, which a book about the withdrawal of the British in, in that century from Afghanistan, pulling back into Pakistan, actually, or would have been India then, of course. It was, it was horrendous stuff, but with very strong parallels to what's happening today. It was an ignominious exit basically, in which everybody in the last exit died, apart from one doctor, I think. But it was it, it, the, the description of that retreat from Afghanistan was A, horrific, and B, horribly reminiscent of what we fear is, yeah, the, is going on at the moment. The, the, the manner in which the um, Afghan army and the Afghan government folded in the front of the Taliban is quite extraordinary. And I, I really wonder... Did Biden and the administration really believe that the Afghan army would actually stand up to the Taliban and prevent happening what has actually happened? Um, I find it a little bit ironic um, over the last couple of days um, 
people out, you know, criticizing the US over this response that they should stay there, etc. Well, they shouldn't have gone in there in the first place. Uh, but now that they're in there, they should have stayed there. But these are the very same people who tend to complain bitterly about the US soldiers that come through Shannon Airport because Shannon is used as US base for transiting soldiers. So th- th- there's a lot of contradictions out there at the moment, but it, it doesn't take from the fact that, as I say, you really get the sense at the moment, particularly from the perspective of women, that we are back in ground zero in Afghanistan at the moment. And of course, the longer term uh, fear would be that this actually then starts to spread its tentacles to the hinterland. So it's, it's scary <clears throat> stuff. Yeah, at the very least, I think it will give a propaganda or a morale boost to jihadis everywhere. Uh, potentially, will give a land base now for any one of a number, including Al Qaeda groups, to to launch further attacks either close to Afghanistan or for, further afield. It is extraordinarily worrying from 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 my perspective. I think that's probably it, Jim, unless you've got anything else that you want to say today. Uh, yeah, I was just struck to, by what's happening today uh, by a quote from Margaret Atwood. Um, she said that men fear that women will laugh at him. Women fear that men will kill him. That kind of sums up Afghanistan at the moment. Yeah, I think it speaks to the frivolous nature of our politics, which we've touched on in various ways today and throughout our podcasting and writing best described as perhaps the culture war that has been unleashed by Trumpism and Brexit. Our politicians fight these culture wars where we other each other and basically indulge in incredibly trivial disputes, cancel culture and all those other things that that come with the culture wars. And that when a real one, when a real problem comes along, our political system is just not equipped to deal with it. And it's been noticeable how feeble the response on all sides from both the right and the left of British and American politicians. Where's Bernie Sanders in all of this, for example, who's got an awful lot to say about an awful lot of things. People like that are very silent about this. And when I look at Boris Johnson here in the UK and, and listen to him pontificating about all of this, it just strikes me that he's great at talking about what I'm going to do for the Red Wall and how I'm going to um, spend loads of money on you and all these effete Southerners and all the other culture war stuff that he comes out with. When it it comes to a real problem that he has to deal with, he's completely and utterly out of his depth. He knows how to fight a culture war, but he doesn't know how to do a real one. On that, Jim, I think we should probably leave it. Speak to you next time. Absolutely, Chris. I look forward to it. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk 
forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.